Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 13 years of law enforcement analysis experience. She's a certified analyst with IACA, here to talk about organizing large, complex cases. And like me, she's been working from home since before the pandemic. Please welcome Mandy Krieger. Mandy, how are we doing? Good. Hey, how are you doing? I am doing well. Before we get started, though, Krieger, you say, is the last name of Smith of Wisconsin. Well, if you're a... A Krieger in Wisconsin, it's a like super common last name. And mm-hmm. um, in Utah, where I work, the super common last name is Smith. So um, just about anywhere you go in Wisconsin, you'll find Kriegers. Oh, man, that's, that reminds me of a, well, the one time I was working a case. And I want to say, I forget, I'm going to butcher the last name. It was like Nugent was the last name. And it was like the Korean form of of Smith. And so yeah. when I I thought I had this unique name and it was like everybody was had the last name of, <laughs> of Nugent. And so, all right. See, I learned something today. All right. Krieger, uh, popular name in Wisconsin. All right. right. All right. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? For me, it probably started not until like the end of college, but I think everyone at least a lot of people I talked to, it started that first time they watched Silence of the Lambs. So (laughs) for for me, it was, I wanted to be Clarice Starling and that that seemed cool to me. And so I kind of gravitated to psychology in college and did that with the criminal justice career concentration. And then as I was nearing the end of college, I was like, what am I going to do with this? So I was kind of interested and heard about forensic psychology and Mm -hmm. looked at that. I also looked at going into like conflict resolution and was trying to decide. So I applied to grad programs. And at the time, there wasn't an incredible amount of forensic psychology programs. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I applied and got in at Marymount in Arlington, Virginia. Got in a few other places, but really tried to think about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And it seemed like the D.C. area was probably a good starting point for grad school to kind of see what was out there. So so that's what I did. I went to Marymount and got my master's in forensic psychology. And while I was there, met just a bunch of people that I'm still in contact with today that do all sorts of different things across the field. But grad school was all of these professors out there that invested their energy into making sure we knew what was out there in terms of different things we could do with that master's. And my shout out to Dr. Mary Lindahl, because she would take us to court and have us sit and watch actual hearings and, and see like, hey, you could end up on the stand, you know. So so that's kind of where I got into some of the moving towards crime analysis, because those psychology classes, that grad program, they emphasize statistics and research methods and that kind of stuff. Yeah. All right. So we're going to try to keep track here. So that's Wisconsin. You went to school in Iowa and then you went to grad school in Virginia. All right. So we'll try to keep track here because as the audience will find out that you have 
been to many states across the, this country. So in terms of the forensic psychology, though, how do you think what you learned at, at that master's program helped you when you eventually become an analyst? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So, well, one of the things that they force you to do, they, they tell you, <laughs> hey, not only do you have to go to class, you also need to do some research and mm -hmm. you also need to go out there and, and get an internship in the field. So they set us up pretty well, like, and, and gave us some possibilities, you know, Erin Wickersham, I think it is now, who mm -hmm. was at school with me. I think she went maybe and did NECMEC or, or maybe Arlington Police. I, I know analysts that went over to Arlington Police. And so just by being in school, by the nature of the program, we were forced into these to go find <laughs> internships. And I was lucky enough, I got to do, my research study was with Detective Jim Trainum at the DC Violent Crime Branch. And so we were reading through homicide cases, 20 years worth of homicide cases. And we got to sit at a computer and enter all that into a database, which sounds probably really boring, but you learn a lot about homicide and mm -hmm. how to work a case. And you could look at a folder and tell who was cooperating and who wasn't. And so it was just that internship, especially, I think, kind of got me interested in the more of the crime analysis portion of the job. And from there, I ended up getting an internship with the Department of Justice Office of the Inspector General. So that was over, that was in their DC field office. And just, it was me and about 20 agents in an office. <laughs> and they, it's one of those things with internships where I feel like this is my little, one of my tips is that you start out making copies, right? Or mm -hmm. doing some filing and you think, oh my goodness, I already have a degree. What am I doing? <laughs> but if you can prove to them I'm competent, hardworking. So eventually they started giving me all of the case screenings to do. Like the, the cases would come in and I would read through them and say like, this is something we're going to look at, or this is something the FBI needs to look at. Or, mm -hmm. And it seems dumb, but it helped me to understand like, this is how we screen for things we can work versus what we can't. Mm -hmm. uh, we got civil rights cases. It taught me about writing well, because you have to write up a report. This is why we're going to do it. This is why we won't. And so working there and with a bunch of agents that had worked many other places before that, they kind of took me under their wing and started teaching me things like how to hide cameras when you're doing surveillance and <laughs> could we fit this camera in this lunchbox and sit outside and would it take? So it was really interesting and just really grateful that they were so willing to show me what they did and what they had learned. Um, and so from that internship, while I was getting my degree, I think that's where it all started. That was that was like, I, I think I want to be a crime analyst. This is this is cool. And I liked the organization of the data. I liked reviewing the cases. And so that's kind of what pushed me in that direction. Yeah, I think for for you, I could understand how this would be a good introduction into the profession. And as opposed to if you maybe they sat you in front of a computer and said, hey, summarize all these stats, right? And maybe you still would have ended up where you are. But I can see if you got the psychology background. You're wanting to know how people tick. 
And so you come in and first internship, you get reading all these homicide cases and trying to just picture everything that you can from each one of these cases. And then you move on to the Department of Justice where, you, again, you're reading cases and trying to figure out which direction to go into. I, I do feel that that is a really good introduction for somebody that studied psychology, wants to know how people tick, and gets into a, a case support mentality. Yeah, definitely. And the best part about that violent crimes branch one, it was a 20, they're looking at 20 years worth of data. And for some reason, most of it was housed at in the violent crime branches, which I mean, if you you're if you know about DC, that's <laughs> not in the best part of <laughs> DC. No. And so there was a few of us that would go and just because of schooling and other things, a lot of times it'd be at night. And I remember missing our bus return once you get like a ticket that you could get on the bus and go back within so many hours or something and us being stupid grad students like we didn't have <laughs> we didn't have the money or cash or anything so we had missed our our hourly or whatever return and the bus driver wouldn't let us on it so we walked we actually walked across like the Anacostia bridge to get to the train and the whole time we had just read all these homicides that had happened on like, mm -hmm. like the same road so it, it was a good like life lesson <laughs> in general oh. it's like man yeah. that's that's great that's what you want to do so. yeah well when i lived in baltimore i always worried about and what would i do if i'm walking downtown <laughs> baltimore and I see somebody that we studied, like a suspect right. or something like that, because I am not a good poker player. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't think I would have had a good poker face if I ever came up, came across one of these people. And like you'd, you'd mentioned about just making copies. And I just remember the time when you just had that first job or that first internship and how excited you were. And it didn't matter. Maybe it didn't matter how much you were getting paid. You were, you were in the game. Like you were, you weren't yeah. reading, you weren't reading books and writing papers anymore. You were dealing with actual cases or actual data and that excitement of just doing it for the, the, the first time and being in the game. It just, it didn't matter what you were getting paid. Yeah. Yeah. Totally fun. Just super excited to be involved. So then, all right. So that's DC. So yeah. then we get to, is it Oshkosh PD? Yeah. And I mean, I took a little, I took a little detour there. I mean, I got done with grad school. It's 2009. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is not a job to be had. And at this point, the economy has crashed and I'm kind of looking at life like, <laughs> okay, what, what do you do now? I mean, this is like, we're sending out people that are graduating at that time from grad school, like hundreds of resumes and not hearing back from anyone. So I think at that point, people in my office at, at the OIG were kind of trying to push, like encouraging me, like maybe you should do, I think we have a spa in New York City and it's like financial and it was something I was interested in, but it was like, do I want to live in New York City? And that I, there's just a lot of stuff going on. So I end up moving to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. I work for the VA briefly, you know, just 
I was already in the federal system and it was like, I'll take anything, please give me a job. And um, so I did that. And as I'm working, I'm always looking for these crime analyst type of jobs. And I see one posted in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and I applied (laughs) and I had no idea what I was getting into. (laughs) So like the day of the interview, I somehow end up at the wrong building. So that's how you want to start out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I called the captain who was doing the interview and she was like, don't worry about it. Just drive over here. So I'm like racing through the city, like freaking out. Uh-huh. And then it's one of those interviews. And I, I mean, I think I've heard you guys talk about this on the show before, but like it's two captains, two chief of police. They are asking the most technical, difficult questions I think I've ever received <laughs> on an interview. Like, please give an example when you would use a multiple regression and and how that would help us to deploy our troops or something. Holy cow. And, and you're like, <laughs> like you take a breath and you go, oh, okay, yeah, it's it's been a minute since I've had to use multiple regression in any practical sense. Yeah. So I end up getting the job and it turns <laughs> out like, They've never had a crime analyst. It, this is this is oh, me. Man. I think the first day I came in and they had found some like random office in some random area and just like you go sit in there mm-hmm. and they handed me like Stephen Gottlieb's book on like crime analysis. And they're like, why don't you just read this? Yeah. Like day one. Like, just, yes, please just read this book. And I was like, what? So, so yeah, that was that's how I started out. It was me and. It took months before I gained enough like trust with the people that I needed to gain trust with to have them like give me work to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. It doesn't sound like they even probably knew what multi-aggression <laughs> was. I and mean, that's the best part. They didn't know. They, said, yeah, they like, told me years later, they're like, we had to look it up. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Yeah. Like, what are we asking that for? And then it just like to me, a comedic scene would be just you just give the most serious BS answer you could possibly think of. And they're not going to have a clue whether you're right or not. Well, and I think that's like fresh out of like school, too. Like, you don't really have like I'd had some. I mean, I I at least touched law enforcement a little bit, but to not really have ever been an analyst before, you're kind of grasping at whatever, like you will tell them whatever they want to hear to get that job, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, absolutely. I remember them asking about ArcGIS and I used it once in a project in grad school and I talked about it like I knew how to create layers upon layers by myself. <laughs> it's just, just hilarious to me now. I use it every day now, but back then I had no idea what I was doing, yeah. right? So, yeah. 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 No, yeah. I mean, sometimes you just got to get lucky and you got to get for you just fortunate just to get in there and yeah, just answering all these questions and getting past this thing and just being able to prove yourself like you mentioned. So, um, yeah, so, and then, I guess with that, you, you're brand new, you read the Gottlieb book. I mean, it's 2010 time frame. Why are they hiring an ALS? What problems are they trying to solve? That's, I think part of it was we're in the comms, we're still in the comp stat, like depending on mm. who's in charge, right? Like we're, we want to know if we're deploying people to the right spots. Like do mm. we need more people in this district? And they had a pretty good like drug. Yeah, we had a lot of drug issues going on at that mm. time, still do. So I think that that was part of it. 
And I don't even know when they hired an analyst, if that was their intent. I think they were definitely looking to do that hotspot, you know, Comstat kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then it morphed into like, let me show you all the things we could do on this drug case to to take it further. And they kind of take down the bigger fish rather than doing this search warrant and doing this search warrant. And so, yeah, I mean, that... That was part of it, like some gang activity in Oshkosh as well. And and then I, I did quite a bit of work with like sex trafficking, human trafficking. Oshkosh is an interesting area and in that they have like a lot of festivals, a lot of people coming there from out of town. Hmm. Um, so it just, it brings a little bit of different traffic. And so that was something I spent a lot of time doing. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I've been to Milwaukee and mm-hmm. it seems like that's what Milwaukee's known for. Like every, someone told me that almost every weekend in the summer, there is a different festival that goes on in Milwaukee from, it'll be various ethnic and just a, a different party every weekend is the way they basically described. It. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's true. Maybe it's a Midwest thing, like oh, so yeah. cold most of the year that like, <laughs> it gets warm. <laughs> It gets warm and it's like every weekend we're just going to celebrate that it's warm. Yeah. Yeah. Just a ton of festivals from Milwaukee. And that's the other thing is like Milwaukee is from Milwaukee to Green Bay. You have to go through Oshkosh. And so I feel like it's that pipeline like every state has right of that main stretch. We're going to go between these cities. And so it's, it's certainly always busy. That's for sure. Yeah, I do. I do find it interesting with the ComSat model. And the meeting is, and I, I think this is where it, I find it fascinating that, especially when you're the sole analyst at a smaller department, wearing the various hats and, cause you're right, you, you can get into case support and you, you're wanting to know what violent crime is and Comstat certainly can be about specific cases and are you solving these cases and do you are you using all the resources at your disposal and then you get into maybe more of the problem oriented policing model where it's like okay not not so much the cases what's the data telling us where all the problems Mm -hmm. are and specifically let's what can we do in those areas to solve the problem and prevent this area from always being the the problem area. And I feel that when you're a sole analyst in this time frame where you're at, you're bouncing back and forth between both those those tasks at a Comstat meeting. Oh yeah, like every day. And I I will say you brought up problem-oriented policing. Like they did send me to the week long with Julie Wartel and I I thought it was great. And so if you ever get a chance, anyone listening that, she she does such a great job and it's it's really great because you bring your own problem right like they send you with like bring a problem from your city and let's let's go through this and that was that was stuff we looked at i mean the problem we identified right away was just like overdose deaths we we need Mm. to reduce them that was a big thing when i was there we need to reduce the number of people dying from heroin so Mm -hmm. that was that was my focus while i was there yeah yeah, and it's fast. I'm always fascinated when that is the target of police departments because that is way bigger than the police department. That's a health issue, right? Right. That's, you're getting right. into really beyond the reach of a police chief. Like I think some police chiefs are like, okay, I'll act. 
I know my lane and I like to stay in my lane. Right. I think when some police department, police chiefs, they get to you get to talking about problem oriented policing, then you're like, OK, now I got to coordinate with health and all the different yeah. city departments. And this is a whole thing that I, you have to coordinate with. And some some chiefs do a better job than of that than others. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we did coordinate with the health department and, and that's something um, that we had to where are we going to have drop boxes? Where are we going to provide Narcan? Like what, mm -hmm. what is, it, it has to be more than we can't police our way out of it. Like you said, right. so. Yeah. yeah. So, so was that the recommendation? You were there about five years. Did you see a reduction in, in deaths during your time there? Yeah, we did. I mean, police wise, we did start working the bigger cases and then and then the prosecutors got on board with charging the people who delivered the heroin to the people mm -hmm. that were dying. I mean, that was back then that was pretty progressive of them to say like, all right, we have to we have to start holding someone accountable, although I'm sure that's arguable as well. But for them to look at it and say like, hey, how can we try to get people to to slow down or give it a thought and there was a reduction now things have turned to fentanyl just about mm -hmm. everywhere i've worked so it's just one epidemic after another but i do i do see the value in working those cases and following the drugs to where they're coming from and trying to take out some larger portion of that organization yeah so that's right in the wheelhouse of a police department when you're talking about okay what's the crime who's doing it, let's make an arrest, let's go through prosecution, and that's right in their wheelhouse. But when you get into like the Narcan and you get into trying to educate the public on the dangers of of heroin and overdoses, I mean, that's I, that's that's where you get in it's a it's a team effort there, right? And it's it's good yeah. to, it's good to hear that it seemed like the the rest of the departments in the city were on board. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's always helpful. You do have to put those, like that campaign type of stuff out there to let people know. And, and that more than anything, we were just trying to reduce people dying from it. You're not going to yeah. stop all of it, but yeah, like let's make it harder for that to happen. So yeah, it's just unfortunate. I forget who I was talking about this with. But it's just unfortunate that some of this stuff, you have to get so many deaths before people take it seriously, right? I yeah. Mean, there's, it's unfortunate that like hundreds, thousands of people had to die before somebody's like, oh, maybe we should do a public service announcement on this stuff kind of thing. Right, so, right, yeah. But, all right, well, I do want to get to your move to Utah, but I forgot to mention in the beginning of the show that we are going to do a call-in segment later. Don't be that analyst. So if you have a don't be that analyst, give us a call and let's hear what you have to say. All right, Mandy, how did you get from Wisconsin to Utah? So my husband worked for a company that is based out of Wisconsin, but they have different like plants and buildings across the country and Ogden, Utah was one of them. So he got transferred, he took a transfer for work. And as a result, I, I follow him. He makes all the big <laughs> money. I work government. So it was, it was hard for me because I, I really loved that job and you're moving, you're new. And at that time, I still felt like they were hard to come by. Crime analysis 
types of jobs. And and I don't know if that's true now as it was then, but just waiting and, and hoping that an analyst would quit so you could jump in somewhere. <laughs> so yeah, it took a little bit of time and I ended up getting a job with consumer protection for the state of Utah. And it was, it reminded me of working for the VA a little. It was like lots of calls from people who legitimately kind of got screwed over, right? Like something had failed them, like someone didn't deliver on on the goods that they had paid for. Mm-hmm. But there usually wasn't a lot we could do. Like we would investigate it and it's all administrative at that point, but you try and help people out and it was it was okay, but it wasn't wasn't my favorite gig. And while I was there, the department next door was Division of Securities and the director over there kept coming over to my cubicle and he's like, I'm going to steal you away. <laughs> I'm like, well, good, like make it happen, you know? So he did. He, he ended up taking me as an investigator for the Division of Securities. And so I started working over there and those cases were fascinating. Probably one of the most interesting jobs I've ever had. Still, still stay in touch with all those people there. I mean, just fraudsters are like, a whole different group <laughs> of human beings. Um, nice. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's never what you would think. And I always feel like it's the person who's really nice to you at church. And then they're the ones that like bilk you out of 2.2 million or <laughs> it's just, it's really, they're really, really sad cases usually in the end because people lose their entire savings and mm-hmm. um, rarely do you get them back. So so yeah, that was that was really interesting. But I was I was living in Ogden and commuting to Salt Lake, and it was getting to be a lot. It's a, it was a commute. So a job opened up in Ogden, and I applied for it and got to go through another grueling interview. <laughs> before before we get to that though, you're an investigator with the state of Utah here in the Commerce Division, and yeah. so because to me that's a whole different ball game, right? You talked about the differences in terms of the cases that you work in, whether it was consumer protection or securities, but you're actually, you're you're not an analyst per se, you're an investigator. So how do you feel your tasks differed as an investigator versus an analyst? I think for me, you had to learn to be, trying to think of the, the best way to put it. I mean, you have to go do the interviews. Like it's it's one thing for me as an analyst to write up someone's background and give it to an investigator before they go do the interview. But mm-hmm. to actually have to be the one to go do it. I mean, I used to have like days, weeks worth of data before I would go do an interview because I wanted to make sure I really had before mm-hmm. I even put them in the room. And so I think that and writing, I mean, the amount of writing that you have to do as an investigator, and especially in securities, like we had to write up our entire case filing. And and then basically the attorneys just looked at it and said like, okay, yep, let's put it to the court. So I had to 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 learn how to to write many legal documents that I never actually considered. And but just the prep, I think the prep that goes into like the difference between, okay, I'm gonna make this product for you and then then it's out of my wheelhouse. Versus, man, now I have to go try and catch them in a lie or I, I want them to confess to this. It's a little bit different level of detail, I think. Oh, and yeah. I, think that, I, I yeah. can't. To me, it's totally different. There is an art to asking questions. 
And this whole exchange, when you're playing this combative game of like, okay, I'm the investigator and I have this goal. And obviously you have the exact opposite goal, (laughs) the people that you're (laughs) talking to, right? It's not like, oh, like you're just asking somebody that's willing to help you and gives you all the information that you're asking for. Like this is, okay, is this person lying? Is this a legitimate uh, answer? There's a whole song and dance to the whole thing. And so did you just learn that on the job? Or is there training that they sent you to? Did you just pick it up naturally? How did all that come to be in terms of just the art of the interview? Uh, Yeah, so we had a director, Dave Hermanson, and I think he's, he's now retired. But when I started, he had been there, according to his 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 notes forever and he had worked everywhere in that division because there's there's different divisions and securities you've got people that just like regulate the industry people the financial businesses and then you've got the investigative side we're looking at criminal cases and so when I first started he had to basically teach me everything there is to know about securities because I didn't know a thing Mm -hmm. and then on top of that he would he would kind of work the cases with us. And then the first few interviews, he would pretty much run it just to say, like, this is how they go. This is how it should go. And so he was you know, super helpful. And then there was people that had been there before. And usually we took, there was almost two of us on an interview mm-hmm. just to, I think it's nice to have the other person in the room looking at the case a different way too, to say, hey, what about this? So so that's <laughs> so, trial by fire. Is that is that the phrase? I don't know. It was it was certainly it is. It is. All I'm thinking of is this like good cop, bad cop. Right. So like <laughs> if you if there's two people, two investigators interviewing, like who's the good cop and who's the bad cop kind of thing. That's and I'm sure it's beyond yeah. that, but that's my I watch too many much TV. But that's like when yeah. you said that there's two, usually two of us in the room, that's what I envisioned. Like, okay, I'm gonna be good cop this time. You be bad cop this time. To have those conversations <laughs> before the interview too, right? Like if you knew the person, because usually what happened before the interviews is I'd already spoken to this joker a few times. And so you get a feel for them. And it's like, if you really don't get along with them, you got to bring along someone else that can like sweet talk them because it's not going to be you, right? Mm -hmm. Like they don't. And the other thing with most securities cases is these people have stolen sometimes millions of dollars. So they have attorneys. And so they're always there as well. And they're, it's so funny because surprisingly, a fraud person comes in and the only thing they know how to do is lie. So they just, <laughs> I don't know what their attorney tells them, but they can't stop talking usually. And it's just oh. like, it's, it just makes it worse. And it made, it always made my job easier because I had already gone through the financial records and said, like, I know that they misuse those funds. Like, so let's get them saying they didn't so that I can show, slide this across the table and say, here you go. Like, you certainly didn't use it for that purpose. So, now, do yeah, you have a was... do you have a favorite case or a case that sticks out? Oh man, I mean, securities cases are so wild. Like, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how much you know about them, but like, people will promise like you invest a hundred thousand dollars in this gold mining down in southern Utah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a 
14% return on investment mm -hmm. within three years, right? Like these are the things they're telling him. Mm -hmm. And then they like show them all bogus paperwork proving that they have the rights to some Native American land where there's going to be gold. And they, they'll make up these huge sheets, like these um, prospectus of like how much gold is there based on this scientist that doesn't exist. I mean, the whole thing is a lie. Mm -hmm. And they'll get multiple investors. They'll get five, six people investing $100,000 in it. And then they just walk away with the money, you know? So, I mean, to me, all those cases are just, you. once you figure out that from start to finish, it's a lie, it's just crazy that people have invested, right? Like, what? <laughs> so... Yeah. Well, yeah, that's interesting stuff. And I think that's an inner, I mean, you just got different perspectives there. Again, you talked about the interview and then you talk about the writing and the yeah. the, the writing aspect of it, because this is, this is no longer grad papers. This is no <laughs> longer working maybe even for the police department in a, in a analyst fashion. This is dealing with something that is very legal minded in terms of fraud, right? So that's a, yeah. those, those are various types of writing. You get different audience, you got a different message. It's, it's, it's different. Yeah. And I think legally for fraud cases and especially securities, like first you have to prove that it's a security and that's mm -hmm. like half your case. Was it a security or not? And then once you get past that, then it's like, well, now I have to prove how they use the money. So Certainly, I, I felt like I learned just an incredible amount about obviously prosecution, but also how to properly put the case together so that it could make it to that prosecution successfully. Yeah. So it's interesting. So you said you have to prove it's a security. So what's the criteria for that? Oh, gosh, you're not asking me that. Okay. All right. <laughs> no, no, I, no, you can. Like, there, there's like, like, multiple it's kind of like daubert they have a, a test as to whether or not it's a security right so okay. there's like multiple legal I, I think it's like between six and eight different things that it has to meet in order for it to be considered a security so oh okay yeah. all right no that you caught my ear with with saying that once you get past that because I'm, I'm sure yeah there's a certain criteria that you have to establish so then, i should have i should have studied up on that before this and because i don't want to make my securities people embarrassed by like not yeah. getting the answer correctly so yeah you know. no no it's 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 fine it has been a spell we're talking about 2016 2017 from the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, and my public service announcement is to go on a court along. Uh, you may have been on a ride along, and I think someone else recommended a 911 operator sit along. So find a prosecutor in your jurisdiction and see if you can go to court with them. You'll learn a lot about the process and about the work that they're doing. Hi, this is Patrick Baldwin former director of crime analysis for the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. I had two managerial axioms when I was a director. You're either in or you're out. I never liked people dabbling in my business. You had something to, you wanted to work with something, then you're all in. And the other one was stay in your lane. As an analyst, there's lots of people doing work. Stay in your own lane. So you move on to Ongden then, 
And so did you just, oh, you, you mentioned it because of the, the commute. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was thinking maybe that you missed crime analysis and you just had to go back to crime analysis, but I, I, I get that. I am a, a, a big fan of short commutes. Yeah. I mean, I was wasting, I should say wasting because I read a million books that year, but I was probably on the train three hours total a day, maybe, or something. And so I just felt like I was missing most of my kid's life sitting on a train. And at that time they were really little. So, but, but also you say that, I mean, who wouldn't miss a crime analyst job because it's <laughs> always interesting. So, <laughs> so yeah, when one came open, I was, I was eager to to put in for it and, and check it out. All right. So then you went through another interview. Was it, uh, so this is a year, almost a decade later type of thing that you go through this interview. So were they still yeah. asking about regression or did, did, was the interview a little bit different this time around? I, it was a little less intense, although like <laughs> Everyone's got interview stories, but my this one, for some reason, we sat at a table, like a really small little table in a small little room. Like they they must have run out of rooms or something. And like, <laughs> we'll just put it. It was probably the size of an interview room, like an actual. Sure. Yeah. And so there was there was four of us and we sat at this really small, like school sized table, like our knees were touching under Whoa. the table. You know what I mean? Like you're right <laughs> yeah. on top of everyone. And yeah, they were firing away with some like really, I, I feel like they went to the IACA website and got some really good <laughs> questions. <laughs> nice. Yeah, but but to be fair, in Ogden, more than probably other places I've worked, all of it at some point has applied to something we did. So it was a tough interview, but I think it was fair. Yeah, so. no, I, it's, it's fascinating because I, I, I think I would do better in that arena. To me, when I've gone on interviews where it felt like I was at a hearing and yes. like I am talking to the commission and they're above me and I'm at this tiny seat in this tiny table, like it's a hearing and I got a microphone and I'm doing it that way. It's just very, it's just a very uncomfortable, very formal position to be in. And you never do that ever again as an analyst. Most people right. don't. Right. And so to me, yeah. I always feel that the interview should be at least closer and talk about stuff that the analyst is actually going to do. Yeah. So I, I can see in that environment where, hey, we're having a meeting in in this small conference room, and that's usually your day-to-day -day probably room, and that's how you would normally conduct any typical meeting. So that, to me, is closer to the look and feel of your position as opposed to being in this hearing style room. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so yeah. All right. So then what problems does Ogden have when you get there? Well, so Ogden for me was a very different environment because going from being the only analyst, I was used to like kind of being frantic all day. And then <laughs> I, I get to, at the time it was called the real-time crime center. So it was a mm -hmm what they almost monitored 24 hours. We weren't quite, um, but the, it had been around since 2011. Mm -hmm. So they were pretty well established and took like the Northern half of Utah, really salt. I would say Salt Lake was took everything South and then Ogden kind of took all the stuff North. And we have right now we have seven analysts, one's part-time. And then we do borrow from a few other agencies in the County, send in like detectives that come in. So 
we're well staffed and it's a very different environment, but it's it's fun. It's <laughs> it's got unique problems. We've got gang problems mm-hmm. and that's typical of Ogden. I mean, we've we've got people on our force who really love the history of Ogden and it's a train town and that kind of stuff. So it's it has all the the problems that come along with that. It's where the race to the the railroad met when they were racing mm. um, is is right there in Ogden. So it's look at just, that! You it's taught a, me a second thing today. All yeah. right, that's I did not know that either. Good good we, deal. Yeah, we were talking about it this morning, <laughs> some of the analysts and I, and one of them mentioned that Al Capone once said that the one place he wouldn't go was Ogden, and so <laughs> I, I mean because. We we kind of, I had a different meeting this morning and we were all talking about crime or something to that effect. And then one of our ca- our LPR cameras got stolen and <laughs> someone from a different agency is like, didn't someone call the cops when they saw someone cutting a whole pole down? And we're like, <laughs> no, it's it's Ogden. Like <laughs> everyone just says that in Utah. It's, it's Ogden. So we just deal with some different issues, I guess. For the size that we are, we seem to always be a little higher proportionally than we should be on crime. Because yeah, your population is what, what I remember asking in the prep call, What what's your population? Like 90,000 in, yeah. in the immediate city. Yeah, like mm-hmm. the county's bigger. And, and we all kind of run in. It's that West Coast kind of mm-hmm. feel like we're stuck with the mountains, you can only put so many people. So there's this crunch now between Salt Lake all the way up to Ogden. It's just wall-to-wall traffic and it's very populated. So there's there's a lot of jurisdictional crossing and, and a lot of cases that kind of go all over the place. Yeah. So then with the real-time crime center, that's usually reactionary, right? Or are you, So are you dealing with problems as they arise or are you more into case support for these smaller jurisdictions it was definitely more like dealing with what what's popping up right then i mean Mm -hmm. having that many analysts too you're definitely more equipped to the radios are always going you hear something you're going to jump on it and Mm -hmm. for me i thought that was fun like i like being busy i like having a lot to do so to to have kind of like constant flow of different things to do was pretty cool but mm-hmm. we were still in that comstat too though like we would get text messages from the comstat meeting that's like i need to know how many pedestrian vehicle crashes happened last week you have five minutes like that's the text message you would get and you're like oh okay well let me just whip that up for you yeah, nice. um, yeah i mean when I first started, the amount of like stress, I think there was like pretty high expectations, especially on statistics. Like if if the chief or a captain or someone's in a meeting and they need a stat, like they want it five minutes ago, please yeah. provide it. So, yeah. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, this brings us to your analyst badge story. And for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works. So we're here in Ogden. It's about 2017 and you're working on a homicide case. Yeah, we got called in in the middle of the night because that's when they happen. And this one, the only information we had at the time when I got in was that they had found some cups that looked like they were from the local gas station, like a Maverick. Hmm. Um, 
And so they went over there and like, good job on the on the people finding the things around the crime scene because uh, they found those cups just like in a lawn or something. And they thought, let's go get surveillance at Maverick and see who bought these. So what I was given was video surveillance to to go through and look at and say, like, who bought these big gulps, basically. And this was like a super all homicides are terrible. Like, so that's my prerequisite there but this was a woman was asleep in her house and the the shot went through the house and just happened to hit her like in the head where she was sleeping and not late later down the road we find out like not in any way related to these people that were doing the shooting or involved it was purely they hit the wrong house so to me it's it's a like especially I don't know problematic in my head and I, I mean no one deserves to be shot but but I hate the I hate the wrong like the bystander or the wrong house situation so so I think that was motivating to us too so we start working on it looking at surveillance figure out who purchased them I think a detective gives us a name like I think this one in this picture is this person so we got onto social media at the time it's probably still mostly Facebook and Mm -hmm. just sat and drilled for hours and hours through that person's photographs until we found the other two goobers in in this situation and one of that cool thing where you can put whatever name you want in Facebook so we couldn't we didn't really know who he was so one of the other analysts working with me that night sat and went through all his Facebook pictures until he figured out he saw one of those um, ID cards that they sometimes get for like national center and for missing explained children like you can get an ID card so that if you ever go missing as a child like there's there's your picture and the parents oh, okay. can hand it out. Mm-hmm. For some reason, he had posted that to his Facebook. Um, <laughs> but then used the, but used an alias. Yeah, I, so, <laughs> but I mean, to to credit this analyst, I think he went through pictures going back to like 2008 yeah. until he found it. Oh boy. And then of course on the card it has his actual name. So we're yeah. like, what? Like super yeah. excited. So they end up picking those guys up and. I extracted the phones, we do cell right extractions, and then then comes the part that I really like, and, and this was probably the first, it wasn't the first homicide, but one of the early homicides when I had just started working there, and they asked if I could go through and see what I could find, and I end up going through very systematically, documenting all these text messages, you know, texting people, like, I'm going to come whip, pick you up, like, that kind of stuff, like, I'm going to swoop over there and get you, and I I document all this and I I figure out that some of the pictures of them with guns are putting them at certain addresses that we know that they were at before the shooting. And so in the end, this ended up being like a really great solid case and got to testify in the prelim for it. And this is like the thing that I always tell people at parties is like you, you document all this stuff and it's juvenile. These were juveniles and it's all this like um, Spanglish, but also like just cool cool kid talk that I maybe don't understand so I have to get up on the stand and explain like when they say whip what are they talking about and Mm -hmm. it's just really awkward reading teenagers text messages on the stand but yeah that's that's the interesting part of our job right yeah yeah no it reminds me I was once at a gang training and this if you could just imagine this middle-aged bald white guy and that came up and he explained the 
the different the difference in the various versions of the n-word okay and so just to picture that in your head like you're in a class you're in a law enforcement classroom so it's it's that but the fact that he did all these iterations and explained it, it it was he was actually accurate in what he was saying but it was comical to see this like bald white guy that just looks like he's from the burbs explain it right yeah i mean and that that became the thing is like i i end up down the road doing hundreds of phones for for cases like that Mm -hmm. and so a lot of times when i testify i end up reading their text messages out loud and (laughs) it is always funny to me and i always feel like the more monotone i can do it like the better the better it comes across because it's just so dumb but yeah. That case was intimidating. You know, three three juveniles arrested, all gang related, thought they were hitting a gang house and it was actually the house next door. So they just miss misshot that one. But the rest of the gang kids showed up for the prelim and it's a little bit intimidating oh, yeah. sitting up there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you're testifying, oh, you said it was a preliminary hearing. So does that mean there was no cross? There's there no cross examining. Okay, okay. I was going to say. I remember Cross on that case, so maybe I I just don't know if it was during the prelim or during the actual trial. Oh, okay. Um, on that one, but I certainly yeah. remember the attorney because like everyone has the defense attorney that they just can't stand, and and yeah. this was the one, right? So I remember it vividly. But yeah. so what was it? What was the attorney trying to get you on? On this one, it was whether mm-hmm. or not the phone was a GSM phone, and I think. I think the reason for it was they were trying to establish whether or not if the SIM card was in it, whether or not it was giving accurate like uh, geolocation for the photos and stuff, which in the mm-hmm. end it ended up being like a completely not important fact of the case and, 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 and didn't come up again. But I was actually impressed at how much research they had done to get mm-hmm. to asking that question. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, you get to the certain point where it's just data coming back on the phone. So unless you're going to question the accuracy of the phone itself, that's basically really all you can talk about. And I mean, other than to say that that phone wasn't on the person for a period of time, right? Right. Usually, right. usually investigators establish that of like, okay, was this phone was this phone with you the whole time? Yes, no, and then okay, if it was, then we're we can track you here type thing. So then it just becomes that's really all they could question is maybe there was something wrong with the phone. Yeah. And I I feel like, I mean, maybe I don't say it a lot, but I feel like some of the newer analysts in our office would say, say it all the time, like only put in your report what you can testify to. And and it should be facts, right? Like it shouldn't Mm -hmm. be something that a defense attorney should because you shouldn't be putting I feel like or it seemed like the phone was here. No, was the phone there or was the phone not there? Like that's, Yeah. I, I think it's like those subtle things when you write it. And and so usually by the time it gets to testifying, I'm more worried just about like covering everything or answering in a weird way, but no, I'm usually not as worried about the actual evidence that we're presenting on because either it is or it isn't. So that's, that's what I like about being an analyst. It's not about what I asked them in the interview and did I persuade them. It's here's here's the data and this is what it's saying. And it, I can't say whether or not they had the phone. I'm just saying this is where the phone was. Yeah. So, yeah. But that's still back to your point about being an awful case. I mean, they so they just three three teenagers shoot up the house and yeah. 
got the wrong house and lean leave their their big gulps in the front yard yeah i mean it was close by like it wasn't even the front yard i want to say it was like mm -hmm. on the same block and and the we had one witness that said they saw three males and that was it mm -hmm. that's all we had so yeah okay. it was a it was a good case and, and the reason i like remember it mostly because it was a lot of teamwork i i thought mm -hmm. it was awesome to have more than one analyst and like just that energy of like feeding off of each other and hey let me look at this and yeah it was it was a good solid case start start to finish and it was yeah. fun yeah all right so good good deal as i mentioned in your intro in 2019 you think about leaving the department and the chief or whoever your boss says hey could you do this job from home type of thing so you you transitioned to working from home prior to the pandemic yeah that's right Nick. Um, my husband ended up transferring again and mm -hmm. once again it, it was like oh well i still <laughs> i still don't make as much as you so <laughs> yeah so i mean I, I went in and and said like I'm, I'm gonna have to resign and they were like well put that on the shelf and like let's see if we can do this and at the time like you said pre-pandemic that was still kind of like crazy um to think about so yeah. i'm really grateful that they were willing to give it a shot and it's it's worked so far so yeah so, yeah, how so did, i did how did you get past like all the just the logistics of computer and security and vpn and and all of that did, did they assign you a laptop did you have a special login how did all that work yeah so i i do have a, a special laptop but my actual computer is in ogden and mm -hmm. It sits, I believe, in, in IT, if we're being honest, and I remote into that computer. So everything I do is remoted into a computer that I don't really see, but it works great. And security-wise, I mean, I think that's, I'm VPNed in, we've got 10 layers of authentication going on. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's worked. The, the biggest hardship for me is I don't get to physically download phones anymore. I still review them all the time, mm -hmm. but I do miss some of the hands-on stuff. The very few hands-on stuff that analysts do. That's one of them I miss. Yeah, man. And I think it's it's fascinating too, because at the time I, I started working from home in 2018. And yeah. so there was this like oh, this is a privilege that you get to work from home. And I almost felt a little guilty, to be honest with you, at this time. Like, it's like, okay, yeah. I get to work from home, and I I really want this to work out, so I'm on, like, my best behavior. <laughs> like, that's, yeah. like, that, that's, yes. that's my feeling. It was, like, really difficult in the beginning because people would be at a conference room. There would be, like, oh, call Jason N., and I'm like on the phone. So I turn into mm -hmm. like, what's his name from Charlie's Angels, where I'm just like that speaker <laughs> on the desk. And I, right. I have like, but I'm not leading the meeting and I'm trying to figure out when to talk. And it's, right. just, a, it's yeah. just a mess. It was so weird in the beginning. Eventually, even before the pandemic, everybody just went to Zoom. And they yeah. were like in their cubicles and they were like just talking on the phone. And then like at that point in time, it freed me from being able to work with with the team. And then, of course, we had the pandemic and now everybody's on my team's working from home. But 
I don't know how you look back there at this time, pre-pandemic, how you felt about being working from home. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I was very concerned that it was going to be a privilege that we try this experiment and <laughs> we're not going to do it. So in some ways, I probably overkilled and I probably still do like overcompensate for the fact that I'm here, especially like I always say around holidays too, like I'm at home and I can turn the computer, I can just pop into my office and turn the computer on and, and look that up for someone. I'm not going to have someone else be bothered at home who's going to possibly have to go into to work and, and deal with that. So, which now most of them take their computers home anyways, but at the very beginning, it was a convenience thing. If a homicide happened, it was the one they'd call right away because I would roll out of bed and just, okay, all right, I'm up and working. So yeah, it's like you have to prove to them that you're not sitting at home, like on the couch eating ice cream. So No, no. And I mean, you know, it is a double-edged sword, right? So I mean, yeah, they can call you at any time, but I also ask for flexibility. So if I need to, you know, cut out early one day I can make it up on the weekend very easily because all I have to do is is doing it so there's as long as there's flexibility in that I don't I don't mind doing stuff on a whim right or after hours right yeah all right yeah deal all right let's talk about long-term cases then and complex cases because I think you've gotten into your career of just not not being the analysts or keeping the the data organized, keeping all the notes organized. And so I just wanted to have a a little bit of conversation about maybe some tips and tricks, advice that you have for maybe newer analysts just starting out and just keeping it all together as you're working these cases that are months, maybe even years. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing that I've learned probably by failure a few times. It's like, <laughs> you have to document everything. And, mm-hmm. and if, if you don't want it in a formal report initially, you, you should have a word document with that report going. So you're not going to remember next week. And maybe it's just me getting older, but I, I had one recently where it was like six days and I forgot to write my report and I could not it took me hours to remember what it was I had done. So I was feeling like, wow, I can't believe I didn't write that down. But especially like as you go on, like recently I've been getting involved in some cold cases and just the lack of organization the whole way through. And as cases sit for 10 or more years, you you need to know what was done. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to be able to go back in there and, and have some sort of clear and concise record. And so yeah, document everything. That would be my my first my first piece of advice. Even if it's dumb, like if you checked the cameras, like there's some cameras in the area. I I would rather that that's documented than like I didn't write anything down because we didn't find anything. Well, mm-hmm. then someone else five years from now is gonna go back and check that camera footage, right? So yeah, yeah. yeah. I I've recently just suggested on some of the groups that I'm working with is just, let's just record this call, right? Yeah. In Teams and in other platforms now, not only do they record it, but they will do the the voice to text. So then you got the dictation there. And so now I don't have to necessarily about worrying about taking too detailed of notes 
I can have the conversation and then I can come back and I can now search that dictation if I'm thinking about a particular detail that I that I can't remember and it's it's there. Yeah, that's great. That's a great piece of advice. Definitely. Yeah, and meetings, no one wants to take notes in meetings anymore. So, yeah, like you said to record it and be able to search it is huge for sure. So, yeah, like documenting that's that's my big one that I've noticed. And and then like thinking about things and I think most analysts do, but in a chronological sort of way or like tell the story, don't zigzag all over the place like mm -hmm. then I did this and then over here um like tell tell the story so it makes some sort of logical sense to someone who maybe doesn't know all the facts of the case so that's that's my yeah. other caveat now do you keep a physical folder of the cases that you work a physical one, like print it out <laughs> yeah like it is you talked about in the very beginning about the the case folders that you that you oh, yeah. used to read. I mean, I guess I'm talking about that. Or is everything yeah. everything electronic? You just have a, a you have a series of folders out on a network drive somewhere. Yeah, now everything is is digital. In fact, even with mm -hmm. the cold cases, we were just going through that last week, and it was driving me crazy because they weren't organized. Because what's happened over some of these cases are 30 or more years old. So we have mm -hmm. now switched RMS systems 10 times, right? So mm -hmm. Of course, I get up my handy dandy spreadsheet last week <laughs> because I need to know the case number in every single one of those systems and make sure we have all of the pieces of evidence that we ever like, like you go into one of the data conversion programs to get the old case or the microfiche and you want to make sure that you have all the handwritten notes and at this point just trying to digitize that stuff so that we can say when it was in Versaterm, it was this case number, and now it's this number, and it used to be this number. And I just, there has to be a record, and I just don't want to lose any of the stuff that has been done or that needs to be done. So that's. Yeah, it is, it is fascinating. You just have to have some kind of coordination, right? Whatever document that yeah. you use, right? If you, you used Excel, a lot of people use Excel. Sometimes some, some people will do Access. Yeah. It's just, it's just the ability to organize all the, the pieces of evidence or files that you're working on. And right. especially on these, these cases where you're getting cell records, multiple files yeah. for just one phone. And that's one phone of 10, 15, 20 different phones that you have. And yeah. That and that's just phones. Let alone you have different uh, uh, reports from interviews or different, uh, just all the other pieces of evidence that you're going to have at your disposal. Like it, it is, it is a lot. Now, do you do you you mentioned like it wasn't in the order? Do you guys have a standard in terms of how when you just go into one of these cases, how it's supposed to be laid out in terms of the folders and subfolders? I wish. <laughs> um, I mean, I, like, I don't know how familiar you are with, like, RMS systems. I mean, I guess I've seen, like, a million now, and, and it's pretty much always the same. It's like whatever officer gets in there first, he writes the first report. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's the guy who, like, or gal, sorry, who, mm -hmm. like, got there first, and then they were the log. 
So they're like, I stood at the door and wrote down everyone that came in and out. And you're like, how is this the first narrative on this case? But <laughs> no. And I mean, since everything is digital now, you don't move it around. Like you kind of just like there is no hard copy. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think any of our detectives have a hard copy. Well, I shouldn't say that. Some of them do. But for the most part, there's no folder kind of hanging out there, which is interesting because when I was an investigator of securities, I always had a like an actual file. And that wasn't that many years ago because I liked mm-hmm. you got to have all the paperwork and the bank records. And yeah, I don't know. Oh, no, it's, but, it is interesting, too. Well, you, since you're in that real time crime center situation, too, you mentioned RMS and I'm I'm guessing not everybody has the same RMS. So you're dealing with the files in various formats. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, yeah, I I mean, just I just keep thinking, I think this is because I just did some cold case stuff last week. But and you think about how everything's evolved from like everyone printed out everything. Like that's how a murder book used to be. Like I think mm-hmm. about the, the D.C. homicide ones. Those were all laid out. There was a protocol, right? There was mm-hmm. an order to them. And on the left side were the, the ME documents, and then on the right side were your case notes. And so you knew what you were getting into when you opened those folders, those books. Um, and like yesterday, I got an email with some cold case stuff or, or last week, and one of the email attachments was like, can you print this? And and then their sub, like their little subject said, I don't know Excel programs. So I had to like chuckle because I'm like, oh no, what is this? And so I open it up and it's a tower dump. And I'm thinking, who who is going to print out a tower dump? Like that's <laughs> like reams and reams of paper, right? So it's just funny to me how we've come from from that. Like, let's just print out this tower dump too. Yeah, they needed new wallpaper. So they just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tower dump, I mean, man. Can you imagine trying to go through a tower dump, like print it out? Oh no, I, yeah. yeah. I, 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 but I, I want it on the the dot matrix printer that was the green and white stripes. I <laughs> yes. hope I'm not. Thank you. I, I was really risking it. Like maybe you had no idea what I'm talking about. Oh, no. So I'm glad. I'm glad you're with me on that because that was a risk on my part that maybe I was showing my age. But yes. <laughs> no. Yeah. That would be. That would be even better. Like. <laughs> The way to analyze this data is to print it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, jeez. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take some calls as we finish up this interview. We're going to hear what some advice is from our callers that don't be that analyst. So first on the line is Christopher. Christopher, what's your don't be that analyst? My don't be that analyst would be don't be putting the Z-scores on a map and don't be putting the crime counts on your Coropleth map. Mm-hmm. Those would be my don't be that analyst. When you're exporting your ArcGIS work into Excel, take the time to change some of those headers. Obviously, Esri has limitations on how many letters you can put on the top of your column. But again, name those columns properly so people actually know it because no one understands what murder one and murder two and murder three are. So make yeah. sure you properly label the column sharing. Yeah, do you, I guess you could also print out your GPS coordinates right. <laughs> as well. So Yeah, but like nothing's worse than a column that you have no idea what it means or represents. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just organization. It gets back to organization and, and trying to just not pass it on without realizing what you're passing on type thing. Yeah. All right, next on the line is Randy. Randy, what's your don't be that analyst? Don't be the analyst who tells us you are tremendously busy on multiple projects, multiple deliverables are being, 
And then whenever that person ends up leaving and gets an internship elsewhere and goes to turn in those deliverables, they're all half-baked and uncompleted. <laughs> that sounds pretty specific. Like you weren't that intern, right? No, although I'm like picturing it's like you can tell that he's thinking of Kyle, right? Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's that was a very specific don't be that Alice. That <laughs> so it's uh it is funny, you just meet those people that are embellishers right like they just yeah. embellish it's just the nature of who they are and sometimes you get embellishers that can talk the talk and walk the walk and everything's smooth but every once in a while you'll get an embellisher that can just talk the talk and can't really yeah. walk the walk kind of thing and so then they get into turning out to seeming like frauds to come back to your uh, career sounds right yeah all right next on the line is Christine, Christine, what's your don't be that analyst? Don't be the analyst that automatically says no. Just because, and maybe I don't really know if I know how to word this, but I think sometimes we either get intimidated by a request or we just think something can't be done, but we should be the ones that try to think creatively and see if we can help solve the, the problem with a solution. Yes, yes, Christine, that is my <laughs> head peeve. I feel like you got to be the analyst that just says, yes, I'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. I mean, in the end, you can always go back and say, okay, we can get this, but we can't get that, right? That's, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm with Christine on that one. All right. Just just to be the contrarian, I'm going to be the bad cop here. Huh? And and that, like, okay, there's, there's certain things that sometimes you just have to say no, right? If you have a ton on your plate, then, yeah, you have to draw that boundary. And you have to say, like, hey, where, what direction do you want me to go into? Because I can't do everything all the time, right? I mean, so, I mean, I guess it's, there's, there's a scenario where, yeah, I agree with both of you. But there's also a scenario where I can see, like, okay, I can't, I, I, that's, that's out of my lane or that's not really what I'm here to do. I got other things that are piling up. I really can't do what you're asking me to do. Boundaries are good. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Yeah. yeah. So I guess it just just depends. But hey, if you're drinking coffee, reading the paper, and somebody asks you for something, and you give them a three-word answer and go back to your crossword puzzle, yeah, that's definitely a don't be that analyst, right? Yeah. So definitely, yeah. there's there's scenarios there where I'm like, okay, yeah, we are we are there to help, and you do want to figure out the problem and it's, sometimes you might not know the answer right away and it does take some effort to figure out what the best solution is right so all right next on the line is richard richard what's your don't be that analyst don't be that analyst that's in such a hurry that you send out an email to everyone in the entire department but you have a significant error on the report then you try to recall that email then you resend it again only to discover only to you get a ton of feedback that there's another error on the report and you recall the email again. So you need to take time to proof your work. Always. I always like to have a coworker or someone put an extra pair of eyes on the work and review it. Analysts must have the trait where they're, they have attention to detail and they're accurate. Uh, all those types of traits will make you credible in the long run. Yeah, I I do like that, and it's it's funny. I just recalled my first email like just last week. We have certain uh, emails that we have to track as sensitive 
if it has certain sensitive information on that. So there's a little checkbox that you have to do, but sending out the email and I forgot to do that. And so I figured out how to retract it and, and do oh, it that way. Nice. So I caught my own mistake and then it gives you a nice little report like, Hey, potentially this person might've read it before you retracted it kind of thing. So, but oh, wow. that's always embarrassing. Like I can't imagine, like, that's just like out on stage, you're, you're just messing up in front of everybody at a, at a Comstat meeting, right? Like you're just, you're hitting reply all, you send this email out, it's got mistakes on it. So you bring it back and then the second time still has errors on it. It would just be just a train wreck. Yeah. No one likes that. Embarrassing all the way around, right? Yeah. It, it is good advice to just make sure that you have everything in order before sending it out, especially if it's a large set of email addresses that you're sending it out to. So, all right. Finally on the line is Rachel. Rachel, what's your don't be that analyst? Don't be that analyst that doesn't format your report. Aesthetics matter, especially when you're trying to get people to read your information Keep it simple, but keep it aesthetically pleasing. Nothing is worse than like an overcluttered bulletin going out or like a two-page bullet. Like no one's going to make it. No one's going to make it to that second page. So yeah, definitely just cons clear, concise, not too much on the page. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. I mean, because you have, it's like speed dating. Getting back to these emails is almost like speed dating. I mean, you have basically probably maybe a sentence to <laughs> catch their eye yeah. uh, the, before they're probably skip, moving on to the next email. And I know I'm not, but there's boundaries, everything. Like I'm not saying you spend three hours trying to craft the perfect email and that you make sure that every, your work, the document that you're doing, your bulletin, maybe you don't, don't spend days on it trying to perfect everything but yeah you should you should set up a template you should st set up standards and concise and bullet points or however you want to however the standard is but people know how to consume your your information definitely all right so that is don't be that analyst if you have a don't be that analyst and you want to share it with the show email us at leapodcasts at gmail.com all right, Mandy, let's finish up with personal interests. And you are a skier. And I, when I mean skier, you downhill skiing with snow. And so I just wanted to get your perspective on your love of skiing. Well, I think if you live somewhere that's going to get cold and have snow, then if you're stuck at a desk most of the week, I just... I think it's great to like find a way to enjoy that outdoors and it's just something my husband kind of pushed us all into it but now like my whole family does it and we'll go out together and we have fun and and it's just nice to be able to get that same fresh air a little sunlight exercise even though it's cold and gross outside so yeah so we we like to go skiing and do it as much as we can yeah so I, I don't know much about skiing, so I'm going to probably ask a newbie question here. So uh -oh. How do you rate your skills? Like, is it some, one of those things that you you can go down any hill on any resort? Obviously, you're not on the kiddie slope type of thing, but what's the range there of what you'll take on? 
Well, and I think it's different. So like, like each resort rates mm-hmm. their runs, like they'll say, this is a green run, which is like, Hey, this is, this is on our easier side. And then here's our blue, like that's middle of the road. And then we've got our black our diamonds. Those are, those are going to be tougher. Like mm-hmm. not everyone should be doing these, but it varies from resort to resort. So like you might go to like an East coast type of place. North Carolina has some and, and their green is going to be significantly different than like a green in like Wyoming or I would say in, in Utah. I mean, green is still green, but it's, it's certainly a different level of green. <laughs> so yeah, we, we typically do it all, although I'm not like my husband likes to do out of bounds skiing in the trees and in the fresh powder and nothing's groomed. There's a difference between groomed runs and then powder runs. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we do a lot. My daughter and I usually stick to the, the groomed kind of more intermediate stuff. And my husband and my son like to go a little crazy. So yeah. Now how yeah. old are your kids? They're 10 right now. Yeah. All right. So yeah, so. that's right. You, you have, you have twins. Yeah. You were telling me in the prep call though. I mean, when you guys go out, I mean, it's, six or seven hours of going out yeah like we don't we don't go for a couple hours like (laughs) (laughs) I mean I think it must just be like everything in my life is like intense but yeah if we're gonna go we're gonna go and do it and yeah I would say on average like five five to seven hours at a time so yeah nice and then the kids obviously enjoy it they're in with you yeah, my daughter um, likes to complain about going, but then once we get there, she's good. And she's like one of the only ones that she's been teaching herself to snowboard a little bit too. So she does nice. both. And my yeah, my husband does snowboarding, but he doesn't, he would rather ski. So yeah, so she's yeah. usually by herself now, but yeah. Yeah, no, well, you're, you're not alone in like trying to convince the kids to do something like my kids, I guess they they would choose to stay at home all day, every day, if I would let them. And it's like, once we get there, they're having a great time. But the the, the idea of going somewhere is like, like pulling teeth sometimes. So yeah. 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 I don't know. I, I, maybe I was like that when I was a kid. I can't remember, but it is, it is interesting. And I'm glad that they're like, it's one of those things that I'm glad they they enjoy what you enjoy. It makes the things a lot easier. It's it's always it's always a struggle if uh, they're into something that you don't enjoy or vice versa to to do these uh, family events. Right. Yeah. Like just trying. And I mean to to be honest about skiing, like usually I second guess myself because you you get there and you've got to put on all that gear. And usually mm-hmm. by the time I get the gear on, I'm ready to like fall over because it's fairly <laughs> intensive. Like just getting the boots on is like an, an ordeal. And yeah. so when the kids were really little, like getting their boots on, like by the end of that, I was like, I'm done. I'm, yeah. we're not doing this. But now they're much more self-sufficient. But still you get all your stuff on and you're like, are we doing this? So <laughs> this is a workout, just getting to the hill. So yeah yeah excellent now so do you guys have a destination resort that you're hoping to get to someday like a like a bucket list type thing i don't i guess i don't really have one i know Uh i know my husband does um and we usually get like an indie pass so it's like a whole bunch of resorts they're all independent like Mm -hmm. smaller resorts but they're worldwide so like there's some on there in japan that he has mentioned and i wouldn't be surprised if he ventured (laughs) overseas to go skiing at some point for sure 
Nice. All right. Very good. All right. Well, our last segment to the show is Words to the World. This is where you can promote any idea that you wish. Mandy, what are your words to the world? My words to the world are to be a lifelong learner and um, just remember that the data we get, the information we get, it's not like ours to hoard and to keep. And the more we can help each other and and share knowledge, I think the better we're all going to be. So that's that's my wisdom. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> I do appreciate you being on the show, Mandy. <laughs> Thank you so much and you be safe. Thanks. You too. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.